That's a good story. A good walk. I'll take you up there sometime. Tell you the story, too. My name is Stephen King. Welcome to Filmstrip, and our views of selected works of Stephen King featuring Nick... You are thinking of putting them up there. Don't deny the thought hadn't crossed your mind, Lewis. ...and Jay. And don't look down. Right. These podcasts will be spoiler-filled and contain in-depth discussions of the plots, characters, and themes. Has anyone ever buried a person up there? Christ on his throat, no. Whoever would. All content used or discussed in this podcast is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. I'm going to scare the hell out of you. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Nick. And this is our Selected Works of Stephen King retrospective and our review of Pet Cemetery, starring Del Midkiff, Denise Crosby, Blaze Berdahl, Miko Hughes, and Fred Gwynn, directed by Mary Lambert. Released in 1989 on a budget of $11 million, grossed over $57 million worldwide. And this one holds a distinction in our retrospective here, Nick, because it's one that I've actually read the book of several times before, but you've never read this one. No, I haven't actually. Uh, this thing's the first time this has happened. I've usually read the works, or we both <laughs> read the works, but uh, yeah, I've never gotten a chance to read this one. Probably just from I've, I saw the movie when I was really young, and I think a lot of times when I see the movie first, I don't want to go back and read the book. Yeah. Or if like a movie's coming up, I'll read the book before the movie comes up. Or with a lot of Stephen King works, I was like, oh, I read the book before the movie was even announced. So, same, yeah, never got to it, but I hear it's actually a really good book. I mean, what's your thoughts? Same, same thing happened to me. I had seen the movie growing up, and then when I was in college, I've referenced this before that I had a lot of weird jobs in college. One of them was I was working the midnight shift in the library computer lab, which was dreadful except during term paper time because nobody was ever in there and this, this was the days before anybody really cared about being online all the time and stuff and i'm just sitting there and i could go get books you know out of the shelves and read and so i just happened to grab this one going hey you know what i'll give it a shot i, I liked the movie and i was scared out of my mind because you can imagine being in a dark library and you start reading some of that crap about you know zelda the sister and some of this other stuff going on it is amazing and i'll say this for stephen king adaptations i mean it's pretty well shot from the page there's a few differences but for the most part they just took the book and shot it it and i was amazed i was like you know stephen king books can be rambling at times this one really doesn't it's it almost felt like it was written to be a screenplay so I've, I've always been amazed at that but it's it's definitely a good read i would recommend reading it yeah this always seems to kind of be a problem with stephen king books is like he has like a really good plot but he likes to stretch out what would be like a good like 500 600 page novel into like 1200 pages <laughs> yeah <laughs> and a lot of it is just like pandering just these people talking almost like almost like quentin tarantino when he's doing death proof where you have people sitting around the table just talking about nothing that that furthers the plot Mm-hmm. Stephen King does that a lot, so it's actually kind of good to hear that maybe that uh, Pet Cemetery doesn't have that, and it's more of a streamlined, you know, longer novella. Or I mean, how many pages is this? It's 400 pages, plus or minus, depending on which version of it you get. So, I mean, it is fast. For a Stephen King book, 400 pages, I mean, the guy, like, you know, that takes... That's like how long it takes to say hello in the stand. You know, I mean, this, you know, his books are are very verbose. But this one is lean and mean. And I, I don't know if it was just in a period of time when he was just churning them out real fast or what. But I've often held it up as one of the better books of his that I've read. And um, well, yeah, not, I think that's kind of the golden age of Stephen King, though, when that one came out, where he was doing some really solid work. Yeah. 
I, you know, yeah, and I, I, we can have a discussion about you know when it started to drop off for him at another podcast, but this one is one of those, and I've I've always been struck again by how close to the book the film follows, and I will lay a lot of that on Mary Lambert, our director here. We don't do a lot of films directed by women on the show. I just, it's not out of any purpose. It just hasn't happened much, but Mary Lambert is a name that I know from her horror direction. She did this. She did the sequel, which we are not going to be reviewing. Just so everybody knows, <laughs> but she's done. Come on, you don't like the guy from the, uh, Shawshank Redemption in there. No, yeah. it up on the motorcycle. Hey, better yet, better yet. Edward Furlong, man. You know, I mean, I, T2. I don't, I don't want to, no, we don't do that. But she did a really cool thriller that's kind of unknown called The In Crowd that I really liked. It was out in 2000. She did, I mean, she did one of the Urban Legend sequels, so that can be forgiven. She was just doing work. But she did a movie called The Attic in 2008, which I happen to really like. It's just a small little picture, but she's good at small, kind of just spooky things. And I think she's really good at evoking what could be scary because, and there's parts of this movie that do it. And there's parts of the book that are very graphic and gory and the way she plays it is much more for suspense. I'd, I'd liken her along the lines of like when he was good and was doing good stuff, the way John Carpenter directs stuff and is really good with thrills and suspense. You know, I, I just, I think her hand on this gives it a, a unique touch. Plus with the subject matter, the way it is, it's neat to have a woman's touch in this. Cause this is really a story about, men you know and what happens to men and the women are kind of ancillary characters in this yeah definitely i think it's almost a story about how men are almost emotionally weaker than i think women in a lot of regards i mean when Mm -hmm. this father in this movie we'll get into it a little bit later but like when he's dealt feeling him and the um herman munster when they uh (laughs) when when they're they're dealing with death how they can't take it yeah and how like their, their, their their thing to cope is oh, we got to fix it instead of just dealing with it. And I think that's kind of a big thing. I think that's something that, you know, many people even, you know, comment on all the time that, you know, men might be the stronger of the two genders, but women are more emotionally stronger and stuff when it comes to dealing with this stuff. And, you know, that's a whole other discussion, too, for another day, but I think it's a good way to segue. Let's do the plot real quick, and then we can get into this thing, because there is certainly a lot to talk about here. And I'll say this, for Stephen King adaptations and for stories, this one is really straightforward. It's pretty easy to follow the through line here. When Dr. Lewis Creed and his family move from Chicago to an old farmhouse in rural Maine, their only concern is the busy highway that is outside their new home. Lewis's family, wife Rachel, daughter Ellie, and toddler Gage, and a cute cat named Church, soon meet the kindly old neighbor Judd Crandall, played by Fred Gwynn, Herman Munster, who introduces them all to local attractions, including a pet cemetery built on the remains of a Native American burial ground just behind their property. When Rachel and the kids head off to visit Lewis's in-laws, Ellie's cat is flattened by a truck, and Judd counsels Lewis to bury it in the old Indian portion of the cemetery. The next day, it returns from the dead, carrying with it the stink of the earth and a really bad attitude. Shortly thereafter, Lewis is tempted to use the cemetery's magical powers again when his son is killed in a tragic accident on that highway. Lewis takes his son's corpse to the McMack burial ground, and Gage later arrives, enters his father's room, removes a scalpel from one of his bags, goes to Judd's house, and kills him while Church watches. Rachel enters in Judd's house and finds Gage in an upstairs bedroom. She hugs her son in disbelief and then is promptly killed by him. Gage calls Lewis, who goes uh, to to Judd's, where he takes out Church and Gage with high-dose shots of morphine. Feeling he was too late with Gage but has time to save his wife 
Bereft Lewis buries Rachel in the hard ground. She returns, and as they embrace, she grabs a kitchen knife, and we hear Lewis scream as he is stabbed, and credits roll to the sounds of the Ramones. And that is the quick and dirty plot summary on Pet Cemetery. So, I, you know, let's let's just talk about our our actors here for a minute, our characters, if you will. <laughs> The only thing off anytime I, I go back to watch this movie and revisit it, and granted it's been a few years since I'd seen it before we did it for this review, the thing I always bump into is Dell Midgiff as Lewis Creed. Now I don't have anything against him personally. I think he's probably a nice person. I always remember him from his portrayal of Elvis Presley in one of the many Elvis TV movies. I think it was the one Priscilla Presley produced or something in the eighties. But he is so kind of blank and <laughs> just seems to be reading it off a car. I don't know what it is, man. It's like, you know, I hear people talk about it all the time. It's just this dead eye performance. And I'm like, this guy gives the most dead eyed performance I've ever seen, especially in a horror movie. Like he, he seems to think he's in like a TV movie of the week. Yeah, he kind of comes off like hitting Christians and does just, like, <laughs> just a little boy. You, yeah. You nailed it. Very got, wooden. Got, yeah. Wooden, just like, uh, He's not terrible, but he's not anything good. I mean, it's just like, yeah, he's there. And yeah, well, at times he's very bad because the, the problem is, like we talked about the opening, this hinges on the male characters. It's saved by the fact that Fred Gwynn, you know, Herman Munster, who played a lot of other things in his life, too. I, you know, he's also the his last role. He was the judge in My Cousin Benny, which is a hilarious role for him. Um his big tall presence and that accent saves, I think, the film. If he wasn't in this, this would be very hard to get through because most of it is him and Lewis talking. Yeah, definitely. He's he's a very strong presence, but with the doctor, I mean, can you even believe this guy is a doctor? He, there's no. nothing about him that seems like, you know, like when you have, when you go to a doctor, you almost like they have like some type of like fatherly thing to them where you can trust them and they seem intelligent. And this guy just seems like a dolt. You, you know, kind of just this guy came sits- off. He came off as like if anything, he was like an accountant or an English teacher or something. He does not come off like a a medical professional at all. Yeah, English teacher is perfect for yeah. this. He De- seems like he's the type of guy that would just be reading something off the page. Well, you know who acts like a doctor? Denise Crosby, the woman who plays his wife, who I know is on one of the Star Trek shows for a long time. Which one was she on? She, gener- she wasn't on gener- Next Generation, was she? She was on Deep Space Nine or something. One of those. Yeah, you're asking the wrong person. I don't know. I, I, I yeah, never mind. <laughs> Denise Crosby, who I know was on one of the the Star Trek shows and stuff it she plays more of like a doctor i mean she's confident and smart and all this i mean she's you know much more engaging they'll make it as a doctor i'm like no this guy like could have been rich from dad's money it, i don't know just not wouldn't that have made more sense though if like she was a doctor she was the crew woman and they move out there and he has like absolutely like kind of feels like he has no purpose because he doesn't have a job yeah maybe but, just that's yeah. all he does is sit around the house fixing stuff you know, fixing problems around the house. Like, yeah, maybe he's like a, a, a journeyman carpenter or a handyman, exactly. an artist or something. Yeah, I, I think the idea here is that, and we're not supposed to dwell upon the careers or whatever, is that she was, you know, from an affluent background, we learn, and things like that. So she is sort of like the typical 80s kept woman. You know, she married somebody who was in a very successful and lucrative profession, and she raises the kids and, you know, takes care of the house and stuff like that though they have a housekeeper but you know she does all that stuff and 
he's the you know doctor and she and you get the idea from their relationship that like she's the one that's kind of spurred him along you know and really you know motivated him to do things in life like i I didn't have any problem with their relationship i just felt like she was much and it's probably because the actress is better she was just much more engaging anytime he was alone on the screen especially with the kids i'm like geez this guy's boring yeah, definitely, definitely. He was a he was a pretty big black hole in this film. <laughs> yeah, it's just there. But again, saved by the Judd Crandall character. And let's talk about that. Stephen King has said he modeled the Judd character off of himself. It was just this, you know, if, if I was somebody's wacky old neighbor, this is who I would be. <laughs> and so all the dialogue is very Stephen Kingish. You know, we talked about accents when we did Graveyard Shift, the one that the foreman had. That we're still not sure where that came from, what planet that was a part of. This yeah. is the the go-to stereotypical Northern Maine. Everybody does a rip off of this guy. And, oh god, and they they talk- play on this on Salt Park. <laughs> yes, I know. Yeah, you don't want to go up there. I mean, this guy is. Awesome, and it's that big booming voice, and it's his face and everything. I just can't get enough of Fred Gwynn in this movie. It was a great performance. Well, it's just it's just how he he chews on the sounds coming out of his mouth. You know, he's just got that drawl with everything. It's just it's it's great, and I I, I it's like every time he's on the screen, the movie's so much better than when he's not. So yeah, <laughs> I kind of almost wish you know they maybe maybe. Maybe he's like a really rich. I'm just doing rewrites the whole thing. Maybe he's like a really, really rich guy, and he's the father, and the woman married him because he had a lot of money, and they had a bunch of kids together. <laughs> yeah, no, I, it's actually good. His story, you know, you get this idea of this guy who was definitely a townie. I mean, had been there his whole life, grown yeah. up there, had you know, was probably in the war, came back, was a farmer, something like that, and and his wife had died, and he was just an old retired guy, just sitting there with his old dog and his Budweiser and his red Marlboro cigarettes, you know, and just that was you talk about hard living. <laughs> I mean, wow. Oh man, did you see his teeth? Dude, this is the late 80s. There was no this is a not vanity project. You know, and Fred Gwynn's I mean, you can't make him pretty. I mean, he's a big dude. That was his whole bit, but again, he's a fun presence to watch. And the two kids are actually kind of cute. Miko Hughes has grown up to be like a documentary filmmaker and does films on the side and stuff now and was sort of the go-to kid before Haley Joe Osment came on the scene of like creepy kid. You know, for the and I think Girl, it's all from this role. Boys you know? have a penis, girls have a vagina. He's, yes, exactly. Oh my gosh, I, how could I forget he was in Kindergarten Cops, which is one of the torture. And he was in Full House too. He was. Uh, I didn't know that. I didn't watch Full House, so. I <laughs> yeah. I'm just yeah. gonna pretend I didn't say that. You had the hots for Kimmy, I'm sure. So I'd watched it enough to at least know who the characters were. But and the kid who plays Ellie, I've never seen her in anything else, but she's cute. And you know, I I thought the kids were actually good. You know, kids in horror movies can be, they can either be really awesome, like Danny, you know, Danny was in The Shining, or they can be really annoying, like most other. Corey Haim and Silver Bullet. <laughs> there, there you go. But in this one, you know, kids are a big part of Stephen King stuff. These I would put right in the middle. They're kind of like some of the lesser used characters, I guess, or maybe something like it. Or, or anything. I thought they were fine. They, you know, they were, you know, sort of cute 80s kids. And I mean, you know, Gage, I mean, Miko Hughes couldn't have been more than two when he was doing this. I mean, he is like just barely walking it. And I thought what they got out of him was pretty amazing. <laughs> I mean, he has some pretty decent lines and he's kind of cute. I mean, and especially when he goes bad. I mean, that's pretty, I'm going to play with you now. How they got him to do that, I will never know. I was like, wow, that is, that's messed up. So, 
But listen to the whole setup here. I mean, they, they go to Maine, and Lewis is the doctor, whether we like him to be or not. And the first day, first day on the job, a kid gets hit by a car. And they're dragging him in, you know, to like the little medical unit, which if you've ever been at a university's medical unit, unless it's like a teaching medical university, they ain't got nothing on staff. They, I mean, so having worked at, at university for a number of years, I appreciated the fact that like, yeah, that's very much like how it is. If something like that happened around here, there's no there's nothing anybody can do except call you know, the authorities to try to get paramedics there. And, and no one dials 911 when this happens? Well, no, no, no. The first thing they do is to take them to the uh, to the infirmary at the university, <laughs> you know. Exactly. I'm like, man. You, they got popsicle sticks. They might be able to fix them. I was like, man, they need some serious, you know, crisis safety training for the student body here. On well, here's campus. the thing. After the guy dies, it didn't even seem like he tried to save him. He just put that freaking mask on him. He's like, okay, breathe. Like, well, well, there's a drop line in all the all the madness. One of the nurses says, "What? We can't do anything to this kid. He's he's already flatlined." He's like, "I know, but we're going to do it right." You know, it's like we're just going to follow procedure because that's what we have to do. Because he knows, even Lewis knows, I, I'm not trained for this. You know, I'm, well, I'm, couldn't he do any chest compressions on the guy or something? I, I know yeah. it was it was uh, again another. It was a act- pretty pretty pathetic attempt to even try to make it look like he was saving his life. Get which, some blood on you, man. Get some blood on you. Get, which get is amazing, considering that this character is. This whole reason to like help Lewis out and help Lewis's family is you tried to save me. I was like, all he did was put the air mask on your face after your brain was exposed. You know, you know, you know what it honestly reminded me of. You ever seen uh, Catch Me If You Can? Yeah. When uh, when Leo DiCaprio goes in there and you got the little boy with the broken leg and he's just kind of like, oh, oh, oh. I'm gonna <laughs> take the gauze and touch. Oh, that's not working right. That's that's pretty much what he was doing. It just like, oh, uh, I'm supposed to do this. Oh. Let's let's call the real doctors in here. <laughs> That's what he says. It's like, oh, let, let, let's get an ambulance in here, and then it like fast forwards a little bit, and they're still in there. It's like, well, how far away is the nearest hospital? I mean, are we talking like it's going to take like half an hour for a freaking That's ambulance? What they say. To get there? Like it's it's well, you know what though? Depending on where it is, if it's supposed to be rural or whatever, I could. But it's a university town though. You think there's got to be something closer? I would think so too. But again, it's one of those conceits. Look, I've seen critical condition where Richard Pryor is faking being a doctor, and he does more than Lewis does here. So I mean, it's it's pretty weak. But the whole setup is that the guy dies. But the the right before he does, he grabs Lewis and he says, "Don't go beyond the barrier," you know, or something like that, and drops. How about don't bring up the barrier so he doesn't know about it? I know. I was like, well, we, okay, but but we the opening thing, and we didn't talk about this. The opening credits are all over this pet cemetery, and. I, the way I have always read that, now having seen, the, it's not in the book, but having seen this film and what happens right out of the gate in the film, is that that is them when they're looking at the property to buy it, sort of walking along, kind of going, without the kids, going, okay, okay, that's what this is. So that they're already somewhat aware of that that being there. There's no way you could buy that and not know that that was there. I mean, it's, just, it's basically across their backyard, you know, is the bed cemetery. So, and I got, I'm going to bring this up too right away. Let's just get this talked about. Uh, they is that a highway that they're on, or is it just that these truck drivers have like no concern for anybody and just going to go 65 down a 25 mile an hour road? I, because I it seems know. like car accidents and people getting hit is a big problem in this town. Because you have it with the guy at campus, the cat. I mean, it seems like I mean not that the cat really matters, but. You you have the, you have these trucks coming down this road and they're flying by and these houses aren't 
200 feet back. These houses, they're, they're, they're front doors almost on the road. It's okay. close. Let me, let Why me, not? Why, put some speed bumps up. You know, let me do give, something. Let me give you a little snapshot into this, okay? Because having lived in the South where there's been a lot of progress and growth over the last 20 years, I can actually relate to this. I remember a road. Well, you just and, got your first colored TV. So. <laughs> you asshole. Anyway, so, so we, we got plumbing too. Anyway, <laughs> here's, here's the thing. I actually know a road in the county, what we call the country, where I'm up, where I'm from in North Alabama, that the houses sitting right on the road that were just farmland and nothing there. And in the last 20 years, a lot of industries moved out there. There's a lot of shopping and growth. The communities have sprung up, and those little two lane highways have now become four laners. And in that process of getting to that, there was a lot of heavier traffic and a lot of accidents on that. And it, it happens. So I think what Stephen King has said, and, and it's a little more clear in the book, is that this was just a little dot on the map that was the place people went to live when they wanted to live in the country and they wanted to kind of be away from all the stuff and, and the city and everything. And because of progress, it became a shortcut for truckers. And if you know anything about truck drivers, Nick, they will find the shortest route. Like they have got to get their stuff there in time. They're, they're always you know beating the clock and they are always driving like maniacs. I'm sorry. They just do. And when you're in a car that there's no way you can't you know feel like you're a friggin transformer anyway and so the whole thing is that they are you know that's what stephen king was making a comment on was that the the urbanization of rural america would lead to a lot of you know problems you're gonna say something a little bit deeper like you go away and try to get away from this and it still follows you much like the corpses in this movie (laughs) i don't i don't think he was going for that but that's actually not a bad reading the other side of it is too and this is kind of the humorous bit is that there should be a lot more accidents than what we see (laughs) i mean the cat gets hit the little kid gets it the guy gets to the college that's three but i'm like every four minutes something should be getting hit because those trucks are doing at least 75 Coming well, that's by one thing house. I don't get, though. Yeah, they're doing 75, and they're one after the other, after the other, after the other. And it's like, why don't you just give them a better trucking road? I mean, well, here's this the is other, a serious problem. Here's the this other thing. happen overnight. Ha- it, it, they happen at all times of the day, too. So I'm like, there's no way during the real estate process that they didn't see that <laughs> coming. Yeah, you know what? And, and I, I'm, a, time, I'm a father. You yeah. know what the first thing I would have done? Build a fence. Well, build a fence, exactly. But I probably <laughs> wouldn't have bought that house. I'd have been like, you know what? No. We no, we we have pets. You know, we got small kids. This this is not happening because yeah, one of the one trucks loses control. It's going to go through the house. No, look, I I have nephews that are about the age of uh, Lewis's kid here, Gage. All right, and I kid you not. Two weeks ago at a family reunion, one of them. Like, we were like, where the heck did he go? And he's across the street at somebody's house he doesn't know. <laughs> you know, luckily it's in it's in the you know rural part of America where people don't, you know, murder children and they brought him back to us. But I was like, I could totally see a kid running away. Like that, well, that isn't it amazing how fast you can run when you see that happening. Oh my like, gosh. <laughs> yeah. your, your superpowers go on. Because I've had that stuff too, where um it was actually just last year. I have a chase was four, and we were at a baseball game. And the baseball game got out, and he had a bunch of, like, you know, he had, like, a soda can and stuff like that. I'm like, oh, I'm like, can you go go throw that away? And the garbage can was literally five feet away from us. He didn't see the one that was right there. He saw the one across the parking lot. Of course. (laughs) So he's going to walk over there, and this is when everybody's leaving. So you got about 70, 80 cars in this parking lot, and they're all trying to get out of there because the Packer game was starting, like, in 15 minutes because they they scheduled a baseball game before. Yeah, I just... 
whatever. But <laughs> he's about to get on the parking line, and just I just happen just to just like look and go look for him, and I see him about to go walk on the parking lot, and I just go running. I mean, I don't think I've ever run that fast in my life. And before he could even get three steps, I must have ran like thirty yards <laughs> and just grabbed him, and I was like. It's like that you get that feeling where you're just like you're so angry, but you're just like in shock that that you know, something bad probably would have happened if you didn't see that. And like exactly. all you can do is just kind of yell at your kid, like "Don't ever do that again." And it's like this, like knowing that it's like seeing this in this movie, it's like Christ, dude, put up a goddamn fence around there or something. Something, you know? yeah, that's the thing. Is like have that- a better eye on your kid, man. Your kids too. Yeah, that kid should be in your sight all the time. Well, we're gonna get to the kid death first, but we gotta set it up a little bit because that night after Victor Pascal dies, Lewis is dreaming and he wakes up and Pascal in his full, you know, bloody gear that he died in is standing at his bed giant like, chunk of latex on his head I feel, you talk about man it was the 80s right <laughs> oh like, man that wow. was bad it was real it was a bad i did like the era. pulsating though you could kind of see a little bit of the pulsating that was pretty cool you know but... what? I'll, I'll give him credit for what they had and i and brian and i did this when we did the superman movies he's like you can't give effects you know passes just because of when they were made i was like yes you had you have to for what they had and on an 11 and a half million dollar budget with everything else they're going to do in this movie that that was fine. I mean, it, it looks cheesy now. At the time, it was very effective. I saw this in 1989. I was, you know, young, and I thought, oh, jeez. You know? I mean, it was, it was very freaky, and it still is to a, to an extent. And he takes him to the pet cemetery. They walk out in the wet grass and everything, and he tells him about the burial ground. Now, this is the other part. I'm like, okay, we've already you know, seen the the pet cemetery. You know, we've already talked about it. Now, like you said, let's tell him about the thing. It's And here's my question to you. Is Pascal really a good ghost, or is he a is, – is, are all spirits kind of malevolent, and he's just trying to fight against it? Because it almost feels like he introduces Lewis to this idea long before Judd even does. Well, that's what I said. It was like – this is almost like, you know, showing a kid a soda – Opening it up and then putting it on top of the fridge and going, you cannot have that. What is yeah. that kid going to want to do now? He wants that soda. And by telling him about this, it's in his mind. It's like, I don't even know if he would even realize. I mean, obviously, Herman Munster and stuff like that takes to it later. But it's like, why are you showing him this? Even putting that idea in his head. And I, I got to ask you this, too, because I've read a little bit about what the original novel was. Is this supposed to be the Wendango spirit? Yeah, that's exactly what this is supposed to be. But it- because they, they, they avoided that subject in here, but I always kind of took it that there was an evil force at work here and that in a way that this evil force has now manifested itself into this patient of his. And it's 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 kind of it's it's playing them a little bit where it's I think it is I think it is kind of I think it is malicious in a way, but it's doing it malicious in like a reverse psychology way where it's like, oh, here's this, but you don't want to use this. You don't want to do this, but I'm going to show you where it is anyways. Well, let's let's just say this now, because this always happens, particularly in Stephen King books, but all kinds of like horror and thriller literature. It's always if you had this great evil, there's always at least some good, if not to counter it, to at least <clears throat> work with the forces of good to help it. That happens all the time on Buffy. Brian and I have talked about that. And in the book, it's clearer that the spirit that basically takes Vis- Victor Pascal's ghost and kind of pushes it to help Lewis and his family is the remaining good of the Micmacs that is trying to keep people away from the sour ground. 
you know, and it's it's also and it's a little clearer in the book. Those ghosts haunt Judd too, and that's why he's such a presence in their lives and things. But it's sort of like the idea of like, okay, I don't want you to stick a fork in the outlet, son, but I have to tell you what will happen if you do it. Well, here's now, a fork. Yeah, and now, now you, yeah, now you've introduced the idea. So it's like I have to tell you about drugs to tell you to stay off of them. But okay, <laughs> I'm going to tell you about weed. But let me tell you about it as I light a joint. Up. It's like, well, <laughs> there we go. So I mean, people have different ways of teaching, right? Let's well, so, I saw somebody say once they they had their two kids playing, and one of them hit the other one, and he goes up and hits his son in the leg and says, "Hey, we don't hit." Yeah, yeah, so it's no fucking swearing in this house. So, yeah, so it's it's something like that. But the, the whole bit is to move this plot along. And I do like the fact that he wakes up thinking it was just a dream, and no, his feet are really dirty. So I was like, okay, that's kind of uh, did that happen? Yeah, did did his wife not notice that when he got out of bed at night? Well, did they good. share a bed? Was there two beds in that bedroom? No, no, no. They they had the same. But here's the thing: she's up getting the kids ready, getting breakfast done, and he pulls the sheets off and throws them down their laundry hamper because Missy Dandridge is their maid. This, you know, another she's laying next to him at night. I mean, I don't know about you, but it's like, I'm always bumping feet and I, exactly whatever with yeah. my wife at night. And it's like, dude, if I was covered in dry mud, yeah, my she wife would, would uh, she would wake yeah. up real quick and be like, "What the hell?" <laughs> exactly. My my wife would have known too, but maybe Denise Crosby's really short. Maybe she sleeps in the fetal position. I don't know. Maybe it's like maybe it's like the office and she sleeps at the foot of the bed on a little couch. I don't I don't know. So the the point is, he's trying to hide this cuz he's just like, "Yeah, weird dream, but whatever. Maybe I sleepwalk in the grass, you know." And we introduced the housekeeper, who I always, I just want to talk about her as an aside. I don't understand her purpose in the book or in the film because she's just sort of this real dour, like hey, everything sucks, it's bad, eh. and then she decides she can't take it anymore and she hangs herself in their basement. So it's it's but it introduces this idea of let's talk about death, you know, because it's the little girl that wants to talk about death, and you brought up in the opening. Lewis and the other people don't really know how to talk to her about it, right? And none of these people in this film are are comfortable talking about death. You know, is that her only purpose as a character is to introduce that idea? Because they do it again when they go through the tour of the pet cemetery with Judd and he talks about the animals dying and how they died to the little girl. Maybe this this whole movie's kind of point is, is that how we all know about death, but we're so weak to deal with it. It's something that we hmm. prepare for our whole life, but we can't prepare for. Interesting. You know what I'm well, saying? Because it's even like, like with this thing, it's like she dies. The little girl knows about it. It's happened in her house, right? In an area will she will be in? You know, if not now, eventually. You know, in the basement. It's why you got to talk to her about it, and it just kind of makes the character seem kind of weak in a way. And I guess maybe that's the point. I guess. I guess so. Him, but I, but I, I really wish the mom would have been like the voice of the reason mean voice of reason here and just been like able to talk to her about it and just be like, Oh, you have to accept, you know, death is part of life and stuff like that. Well, let's, you know, let's talk just, about why she can't though. Cause her, because of her sister, yeah. her whole story, she had a sister growing up who had spinal meningitis and she would often be left alone with said sister who was very grotesquely sick and very, and not to minimize what that does to people and things, but the way it's portrayed in this film, I'll tell you, it's probably the scariest thing in the movie, particularly when you're younger is watching Zelda, you know, thrive around the, you know, uh, what am I trying to say? You know, 
walk around in that room hunched over and that scary face and just you know all the silence. I, I, no, I gotta ask. I've never, I've never known anybody with spinal meningitis. Is this what it really does? Not. Or is there's just like a real grotesque way of. It's a real grotesque way of showing it, but it does emaciate you and it does cause you basically to choke on your own fluids. I mean, it's very, very debilitating disease. But it's taken to as you would in a horror movie and a horror story. It's to the worst extent. And the the other thing, and it really struck me this time, is that we have to remember we're remembering a woman who comes from a very dysfunctional family her parents don't like lewis he's a freaking doctor they don't think he's good enough whatever you know and they they hate him and there's all that tension and plus you know they well her brother her her other son is a lawyer and he does work for al pacino (laughs) the other side of it is the uh (laughs) that's a good call the other side of it is the they didn't want her older sister. They couldn't put her away, but they just felt burdened by it, and they sort of dumped it off on Rachel, the you know the younger girl. And so we're remembering her damaged psyche and child's memory of something, which when you're a kid and you remember things that are scary, they're always a bit worse than they really were, right? But the whole point was that it scarred her. And the way it's done here in this film is just to jolt the audience. Because let's be honest, for about 20 minutes, nothing friggin' happens. Except people sitting around talking about death with really dead deliveries. <laughs> so it's there's nothing Sometimes going on. Sometimes dead is better. Well, that's the best line in the film. We'll get to that. But the, the whole bit is to show you that there's no adult equipped to protect these two kids or to teach them about death. And and to carry your idea further here, Nick, isn't that really what happened to the Indians too? They created the sacred burial ground to raise people back from the dead. Then the ground went sour and you realize they probably raised a lot of people from the dead to realize, Oh, that that's not good anymore. And then they stopped using it. (laughs) I I, I hate that term though. The ground went sour to me. It makes it sound like someone just was drinking a carton of milk out there and dropped it on the ground. And now it all became sour. (laughs) Well, okay, they don't talk about how, and it's not in the book either, how the ground goes sour or whatever, but I've always took that as when you try to play God, you know, enough, that something is going to change and go, nope, that ain't going to work the way you want it to anymore, and it gets turned against them. I always thought it was some type of demon or something out there, like, like I said, like, I kind of, before I rewatched this movie, I kind of was like, looking through stuff on Pet Cemetery, and I saw a little thing about the Wendango, or however you say it creature so i always figured i'm like okay maybe that was a demon or something out there maybe these like ancient indians you know they weren't as you know good as what they you know people like to think or whatever maybe they somehow conjured up some type of demon and basically it's you know was playing with you know hey you're gonna bury him here i'm gonna bring him back and possess him and stuff like that kind of a way to get back of him it's the idea of when humans try to use the spirit world and the spirit world powers for their own selfish desires that the spirit world will turn on them. You know, it's, it, well, it's like ask. I'll give you, it's, it's, it's the whole thing we've talked about before already in this movie is I'll give you a little taste of this, but if you abuse it, which you're going to do because it's awesome, then I'm going to turn it on you and kill you with it. And that's yeah. the whole thread of all of this. Well, when has anything ever turned out right when it's ancient Indian burial ground? Never. Yes, it is. It is a slide against our Native Americans that everything they do is either they're either drunk casino owners, you know, reindeer games, or they are uh, harbingers of like all things that are the first evil. It's, See, yeah. I always take it as like that's like their land and we're going to go there and we pollute it and it's almost like a way that they get back at us for doing it. I never took it as like the Indians are evil. I always took it as. We're going in there and raping their land, 
and this well, is the way that they get back to us. Well, and, and who knows? Back. Again, it's never told, but it could have been like the Big Macs, like the way the ground went sour is they buried some pale faces up there. And you know, maybe still, when he goes, that was the first thing he said was ancient Indian burial ground. I'd be like, dude, I'd get off of that right I, now. I, man. Look, I'm calling the realtor right now going, has the check gone through? Because I, I think I'm done. Yeah, I didn't see anything <laughs> on this uh, on, on the description here about ancient Indian burial ground. Uh, and this highway cold, is insane. So. You said, you, yeah, you said cozy colonial house with slow moving road. No. <laughs> Look, I'll pay the closing costs, but somebody's erecting a fence. <laughs> All right. On both sides of the property. So we're going to put the green monster out here on the back side. So. Yes, yes. Because this, this is essentially how the story could have been solved fences. Yes. Fences will kill Pet Cemetery in its tracks but no we have another hundred minutes to go so I mean, that's how it's, it's going to go but the whole the whole bit is that it, it they introduce all the power there you know and we and in the process we've learned about rachel and we've learned about her screwed up family and all the stuff and ellie is obsessed because the the housekeeper killed herself and she's obsessed with like what happens when we die and lewis has no way of really telling her about it you know and he can't talk to her about it and her daughter and well, Rachel takes the kids. They go, I guess, for Thanksgiving. It is to Chicago, and he's sort of bumming around the house alone. And of course, you know what happens? Church gets hit and turned into an ice cube on the side of the road. <laughs> so, <laughs> I gotta say though, dude, that cat is freaky. That is a weird. I, I mean, yeah, they got a really weird gray cat, and it it had weird looks before it was possessed. <laughs> but then it was really. But the the one like the prop that they pull up off the ground, like the thing that always gets me is that the frost is like cracking as he's trying to rip it up out of the ground. I mean, it's like, oh, that's that's been dead a long time. That's not good. <laughs> so. <laughs> And here's the deal, and I don't understand why. Why does Judd take him to the 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 McMack ground to bury that cat? Is he just so afraid that like, oh, she's dealt with enough death, we can't take the little girl's cat away from her? Uh this is the one part of the story I really do not follow is why he knows what will happen if you take it up there. So why do it? So part yeah. of me was kind of thinking, I'm like, is he kind of evil in a way? You know, maybe, maybe they could have done like a whole sixth sense thing and that neighbor never existed and he was part of the demons too and stuff. And that's why this <laughs> happened. But no, that's not the case. So there is no reason for him to have logically taken him up there. In what? fact, I, I, I wish it would have been that the father was sitting there going, I know about this. You know, maybe have the father that the cat was in the house. He was getting annoyed. He kicked the cat out the door. And then all of a sudden, the cat goes over there, gets run by it. Now he feels guilt because he was the one that killed the cat, you know, indirectly. So he goes over to, he goes over to Herman Munster's house, and he's like, you got to help me solve this. I know about the burial ground. Please help me go there. He goes, I'm going to go there anyways. But if you don't, you know, I, 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 it's, it looks like it's a dangerous track to get there. You know, I'm going to try to do it anyways. You either can help me and make me get there safe, or, you know, if anything happens to me on the way, it's on you. Exactly. You could have done something like that. Put a guilt trip on him for doing that. Have him do it. Have him do it in a way that he doesn't want to do it. But just the fact that he comes over and is like, "Oh yeah, so let's take this cat to this burial ground," even though I know it's probably going to want to kill you when it comes back. Well, and here's the thing: we learn is, and we learn through through different things is that that cat comes back, and the cat came back the very next day. <laughs> well, the cat comes back, and he always says, "No, that's your cat now." You bury it, and that cat comes, you know, uh, uh, is yours. And I mean, he does this whole bit. So if it's trying to save the little girl's feelings, it doesn't work <laughs> because it's not, it's not her cat anymore. It's Lewis's cat. Because when they come back, that's when 
it, you know, the girl notices something is wrong with Church. It, not the fact that he has gl- gold glowing eyes all the time. Yeah, and the fact that it's hissing at everything. Exactly. And before it was a really cute, sweet rub up against your cat. Which, I mean, you know, cats can be temperamental, but that one was fairly tame and nice and clearly had a relationship with that girl. And now it's just like, you know, and like you said, it's the demon cat. (laughs) You know, I don't know. It's just very weird. But it all is to introduce the idea of the spirit ground and stuff. And I love how they've introduced it. It would have been more effective if it was a dog, though. Well, uh, dog, cat, I don't know. But the, the whole thing is... And if you don't know what happens in the story and you're watching it, you're going, okay, who's going to get killed by the highway? Who's going to get killed? That's you know now we're going to put a human up there. And See, I forgot about the highway at this point. I thought the cat was going to do something. What the cat? <laughs> what with the cat? You know, you got the whole thing about cats and killing kids and their cl- cribs are in their bed. That, they the did cat? that in Cat Side. That didn't work out so well. So <laughs> yeah, but we could have got something cool where the cat went down the kid's throat or something. Hey, man, the, cat, the cat's there to protect the kid, man. It's going to fight the evil trolls. And now that it, it itself is back from the dead, it's probably Super Cat. You know, so. See, how, how badass would it have been, though, if that little troll guy from Cat's Eye appeared all suddenly <laughs> and the one cat looked at it and just, like, ripped its head off. And, it like, <laughs> and probably in a deleted scene of Pet Cemetery 3, but that uh, <laughs> never got made. But we know somebody's going to die, right? And, of course, it has to be Gage. And I'll say this. You know, we talked about, you know, little kids will run away from you, and, and you got to watch them closer and stuff like that. But I love the setup of it is it is all very innocent. They're having a picnic, and, and Judd's there. Apparently, he's like new Uncle Judd. But they're all hanging out with evil cat, and they're eating, and they're flying a kite, and the kite gets away from the little boy, and he just goes after it. And everybody's giggling and laughing because when a little kid falls down, the worst thing you can do is overreact. I know you know this, Nick. It's because they'll start freaking out. So you just laugh, and then they laugh, and everybody's laughing. And then he starts running toward the highway. And at that point, you realize that Lewis is not only a bad actor, but he is the slowest white man ever. <laughs> he can he trips over his own feet at least three times trying to chase That's the kid. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying, man. It's like you get when you see your kid in any type of trouble, you get superpowers right away, man. Adrenaline, not, crazy not this, shit. Not, not this dude. <laughs> yeah, you, but you, but you could tell he's like that when the freaking guy came into the the, the hospital, the, his, his infirmary, when he had his like. Yeah. Head gashed open. He had no sense of like, I got to try to do something. Or he's just like, yeah, okay. And that's well, you know what? I've never read that before. You, you brought up a really interesting point there. It's the idea of male inadequacy. That's Lewis's problem, right? He's made to feel that way by his in-laws. Somehow or another, some of that does creep into him and his wife's relationship. You've seen that. And he just seems to be kind of at a loss. Plus, he's a doofus. It, no, no, it's just an hour and a half long lag. <laughs> you're trying to tell me. I don't, I don't know that we're going there, but it is definitely about a, this man's sense of feeling like he can't do enough because that's what happened. He doesn't get too enough. And I'll say that's a really effective scene, the way they shot that. I mean, at no time was the kid ever on a highway with a truck. It's all superimposed and stuff later, but it looks great. I mean, it looks like he's there and the trucker slamming on the brakes and skidding, and behind the skid, what do you see? Just that trail of red. I thought, geez, that is just horrific. I mean, that is an unsettling scene. I thought the most unsettling was just a shoe. Oh, oh, the bloody shoe, yeah. That's. I thought that was, like, the worst, because it's just, like, anybody who's always, like, you know, if you had little kids and stuff like that, it's always 
what is the always the cutest little thing you can buy for him? You buy him a new oh, little geez. pair of shoes and stuff like that. And it's always like when you see that, it's just like that really kind of like strikes the core, especially with me being a dad. It's like, oh yeah, oh shit, man. It, it, it's it's a hard scene to watch. I remember even when I saw this as a kid, that scene really stuck with me even more than the Zelda stuff. It was just the kid getting hit by the car, but the uh, the truck. It was just like, wow, that is cold, man. And you always just felt terrible for him, but. Looking back on this, it's like, man, it's amazing these kids have survived as long as they have with a dad like this. It's just, <laughs> he is just like, I, I could see him like the wife going to the labor and be like, all right, so I got to get my shoes. Oh, you know where my wallet is, honey? And just like two hours later, you know, she's still like, we got to go. We got, I'm almost ready. It's like, he, this guy's the slowest dude in the world. <laughs> he, he is definitely dad inadequate. But, but you talk about just, just crushing the dude i mean and i can't imagine what it would be like losing a child you know I'd, well that kind of comes back though later with like when they're showing the dad pulling him out of the uh graveyard yeah it's kind of disgusting to say but they, there'd be nothing left of the kid oh it, it is i mean it's it i'm i mean that's what i thought too i was like geez that, that kid would have been so mangled up from that but whatever it's they, 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 they would have been picking up pieces of him on the on the house yeah. i mean literally the impact yeah. of that with that little of a body yeah, it's sad to say that we know that, but yeah, you're right. It, but the whole setup of it is, is that we have to do something that is so traumatic that it drives Lewis to this moment of just insane grief. And I lo- and this is probably the best conversation that he and Judd have, and they have a ton of them in this movie. But they're sitting down, and Judd comes over, you know, and he's it's after the funeral, and he's just sitting there, and you know, Judd walks in, and he's like, "I'm not in the mood to talk. I just buried my son." You know, and Judd's like, I need to talk you out of doing what I know you're thinking about. And again, I was like, are are we going to introduce him to the drug and then not let him have it? Is because oh, maybe he wasn't thinking about it, or was he? I, do you think Lewis was thinking about it at that point, or was it after Judd talked about it that he thought about it? I think it might have been a little bit of both. I think he might have been thinking about it, but I think he kind of drove home the point of that. Well, Here's the thing, too. Again, it would have been so much better if in the story. The dad wants to do it, and this guy, uh, Judd, is just like, no, we're not going to do it and stuff like that. And Judd tries to prevent him from going to get his son to bit dare him up, and then Judd kills him. Yeah, or or I Lewis th- stabs him with you know one of his syringes and knocks him out. You know, so Lewis goes should. over to the dark side. Yeah, I'm with that. Like, like Judd should have actively tried to stop him from doing what he's thinking about doing. And he does with a really great story. Because I, earlier, after the cat burial, we, we didn't talk about this, he asked Judd, anybody tried to bury a person in the Micmac burial ground before? And I love it. Like, he just, no, never, you know, and just freaks out and knocks over the beer bottles and stuff. And then, of course, he comes to fess up that, like, well, obviously they did and it didn't go well. And he tells him about a kid who died during World War II. His father was, you know, real grief stricken and put his son in the McBeck barrel ground and he came back, but he basically brought him back as like a George Romero zombie, right? And he terrorized the town folk to the point that they they go over to the house and they burn the house down with Timmy, you know, the raised from the dead soldier who keeps his dad in the house so that they die together. And I, that's the thing that really struck me about this is that Timmy looks real freaky and he's like chewing on a dog at one point and he scares off a woman and he's kind of lumbering toward her, but he never does anything just overtly evil. 
and all the you know the town men you know get together and the and their way of dealing with it is we're just going to burn it to the ground right which is you know the yeah, man Frankenstein yeah exactly and but I, you get you miss it if you're not paying attention to it real close Timmy grabs dad's like don't leave me daddy we can be together this way just don't leave me like all Timmy wanted was to still be dead <laughs> it's like I didn't ask you to bring me back from the dead dad that was not cool and he he causes his dad's own death as a part of that but now you know another death is on all of those men's heads right because because they burn the house down timmy's dad dies too yeah i guess, i think it's just again more of the point of the movie i think it's just again we cannot deal with death in a way well, by not dealing with death we're bringing upon more death and and that's another memorable line is what judd tells uh lewis is like uh, you know, everybody says a woman's secrets are deep and stuff like that, and that's true. But uh, you know, anybody ever known a man will tell you there's nothing deeper than a man's soul. You know, a man's heart is stonier than a woman's. You know, kind of like that ground. And I love that 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 metaphor. I was like, yeah, that's a really interesting way to take it. Is that you know, you'll try to utilize it, but you don't really know how to, so you just sort of let it sit and do its own thing, and it's just kind of there, but it's not tended to. And therefore, it's never really what it could be. Isn't that what he's trying to say? As oh, definitely. I thought. I thought. That, I, yeah, no. I thought that was kind of a good, good analogy, good, good way of kind of bringing the two together. Is that you know, a guy's got a hard outer shell, just like that graveyard and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. you know, if, if you break through it, you may not like what you see. You know, so you're yep. you know like. You always hear it too, like a lot of time with like women or something, meet a guy and it's like, oh, I got to try to break through to him and stuff like that. Sometimes you don't want to do that. <laughs> but yeah. there's, sometimes there's a reason for that shell and stuff like that. And I think that's kind of the, the point he's trying to make there. Exactly. But now this sets into motion, of course, everything that's going to happen in the third act, which is, you know, the Ellie and the kid, the remaining kid, uh, not Ellie, Rachel and Ellie go to Chicago. And of course, Rachel's begging. Lewis to go with him, and he's like, "No, nah, I can't go and be around the in-laws because he's already had this knockdown drag out with his father-in-law." Which, but boy, talk about being a dick at your grandson's funeral! Wow, <laughs> I mean, I was yeah, yeah, they would have they, they would have been having a second funeral. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I feel like is, is Stephen King not get along with his in-laws? I know he's been married to his wife Tabitha for you know many many decades, and I was like, well, just maybe get along with his in-laws or something. I don't know, but I think I think no matter how well you get along with your in-laws, there's always gonna be a little bit of resentment there between the father and the uh, the, the son-in-law. Well, we're not gonna get into the whole you know. You're 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 banging complex. his daughter, dude. There's always something. <laughs> oh, there. God, we just went to some dark places. I didn't think we were gonna go to today on, on film strip, but Yalo, we're here. So, <laughs> but he, he goes. I hope nobody in the medical profession listens to this show. <laughs> They're gonna diagnose us so anyway. Um, they go off, and Ellie starts having these nightmares about. Paxcal. And of course, it's Victor Pascal trying to go, hey, you need to go back because your dad's about to do something really stupid. So, and, which, 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 which it makes no sense that she's seeing this guy. Uh, well, that's the thing. I, and here's the deal, though. We've done a lot of Stephen King movies at this point. What is it about children and Stephen King? They always have like some touch to the supernatural. It's the idea of that innocence opens your mind to uh, suggest. Why not, instead of having it be him, why not have it be her little brother? Well, okay, maybe that that would have been kind of cool. I I can tell you why it wouldn't have worked. I'm sure Miko Hughes couldn't communicate like that. Like, Daddy, bury me bad. You know what I mean? What's she going to interpret that? No, it could have been something like, you know, stop Daddy, stop Daddy, you know. Okay, that's you know what? That's not a bad idea. They ever remake this? It could have been very, very vague, but the audience knows what the baby's saying, and 
that would have the, been... to- the toddler saying, but the daughter is trying to figure it out, and she could just go to her mom and say, "I just, I just got a really, really bad feeling. Something's gonna, bad's gonna happen, and we, he needs to get out of there. Or someone needs to go get him now, and stuff like that." Well, something with, and that's the thing. Pascal eventually starts to work on Rachel because <laughs> she's just as open to suggestion. <laughs> and my point was like, why did you even bother with the little girl? <laughs> you know, just go to mom and go, "Hey, your husband's about to do something incredibly stupid." Please go stop him because it takes nothing. And again, it, it could have been Zelda with it, it. Could have been Zelda with her. Yeah, you know what? They were all seeing different visions of death that affected them the most. Her and her sister, her, her daughter, the, the daughter and her brother. It could have been him with the guy who that that died out there. You know, they, they all could have went around. They couldn't, they, but maybe that maybe that latex thing on the head was really expensive, and they're getting the most money they can for it. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about that guy. I've never seen him in anything else, so I have no idea. Can you please go produce this though? I'm liking your idea for the reboot. Just please get a better director than Rob Zombie or McGee. But you know, if you'll do that, I would go for that. That would be an interesting new twist on this. And please get a better Lewis. But anyway, I don't know who you're going to get to play Judd. Gary Grant. Sinise. <laughs> I don't know who you're going to get to play Judd, but you know, good luck with that. But anyway, probably James, Gan- uh, J- J- James Gandolfini, Bernie Mac. But anyway, so um, the. We could put him in the burial ground and get have him do it. <laughs> oh God, yeah, that's right. He is dead. I'm gonna cut that out now. Shit. Anyway, I didn't think I, Cedric the Entertainer. So I'm thinking about it. anyway. No, it's got to it's got to be Will Ferrell. Ah, uh, God, then that would be hilarious. But anyway, maybe you can resurrect that's his a, career. That cemetery, the comedy version. Maybe you can resurrect his career. Ooh. Anyway, so the whole bit is though that that she's going to go get Lewis and she tries calling him of course she can't get him and I love her mother's explanation oh honey you know men alone he probably went out for a chicken dinner <laughs> like what what century is this woman from <laughs> I'm sorry too okay you got a father who is basically just lost his son okay just lost his two-year-old son he completely 100% feels responsible for the death and you leave him alone she begs no. him to. She begs him to go with. It doesn't matter. You don't beg him. You make him come. Well, here you go. Here's... You go over and you tell Herman Munster, help me get him out of the house. He's got to come. You know, he's a doctor. Or whatever they need to call up a doctor themselves. Get someone there and say, hey, whatever. Or you don't go yourself. You stay there with them. That's the other side. I'm don't like... leave him alone. <laughs> it's not. Or if, or, or, or if they have to go, if they're like has to do it for the daughter or whatever like that, maybe just send the daughter off by herself there because exactly. you know what? that might, that might be a well thing. That might be a good thing to do is just get her out of the situation. I could buy that. You send daughter with the grandparents because they do adore her. Like there's you obviously get this relationship that they're really close with her. And I'm like, you send daughter to Chicago for a while, and me and dad have got to figure out what the hell we're going to do now because we just lost our son. I don't imagine you'd want to stay in that house very long, right? Like, that'd be on the market quick, don't you think? <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, I don't know what you're going to tell people. It's like, yeah, we're just deciding to go back to the city because this is not cool. So, but, I'm surprised he wasn't just going nuts and putting, like, spike strips on the road for the next speeding. That's what I'm going. I'm like, no, nobody, like, we're not suing the trucker company. There's no talk of any of that. I'm like, that would have happened so fast. Like, the lawyers from the trucking company would have been there with the insurance people writing checks to you the next day after your son's funeral. Like, please do not sue us. We're so sorry. Like, seriously, that would have been taken care of so fast. They would have built a fence for everybody in town. 
to do that. They would have paid for they, You know what they would have probably done is they probably would have demolished that road and rerouted it. Exactly. They would have paid for massive highway reconstruction had something like that happened. Let's yeah, just the, say, city, the city would have done it. The municipality there would have exactly. done it. The state but, would have done it. Well, everything would have done it. Wait a minute. You talk about the city. Who the hell else lives around here? It's Judd? It's got <laughs> a university, <laughs> though. It's got a university. I mean, this isn't like it's only I got the small. sense that the university was like 20 miles away. Like he had to commute to work. You know, it's all got it's all got to be connected though. If it's only got a couple houses out there, it's not like I mean, who's going to be the governing body out there and stuff? Who's gonna... Maybe it's unincorporated. That's a good point. I don't know. They don't explain any of that. You and I are sitting here trying to <laughs> trying to give reason for why none of this should happen. And it's he... a Stephen King movie about a killer cat guy. It's it's, it's not even about a killer cat. It's and about you're, 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 you're talking about lawyers and freaking checks being written. It's, and hey, it's it's about killer Native Americans. It's not about killer cats. All right, so it's about Wendigo. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Every time you say that, I just hear a Django in my head. So, but anyway, this is Kurt not Kurt. <laughs> yeah, Kurt just woke up. So, all the way in Alberta, you heard that. Talking about Django. Jeepers. I, was, I don't even want to see it now. So, anyway, after all that. But, of course, he goes and digs his son up. We already talked about that. There probably wouldn't be a lot left. But he does get And I would say that was creepy, man. The little casket and all that stuff. I was like, oh, God, this is just really unsettling to watch someone do and I, i'll give this to dale mckiff his performance is completely forgettable in this film with one exception this bit right here where he's with his son and he's like talking to him and carrying him up the road i actually bought all of it i liked it i thought it was really it was really touching what he was doing you know in, in a film that you can have some laughs with if you start poking holes on it like we've done he it's a real moving moment to hear him go, it'll be all right. I'm just going to take you right up here and you should be right out. No problem. You know, and he's just, it's like he's convincing himself that it's going to be okay. How about I'm going to do another little rewrite right here. He's bigging up his son's body and judge shows up behind him. And he's like, I, I'm not going to let you do this. Not going to let you do it. And right there, he just turns around, hits him with the freaking shovel. Yeah. Knocks him out. And I'd even go a step further is that he kills him. He puts him in gate in a gauge's grave buries it so no one's ever going to think anything that would have been kind of that'd have been kind of dark i would have been cool if he just cold cocked him and and left see but then but then the thing though is you could also have you know instead of maybe zelda talking to the mom it's now judd talking to the mom yeah that she's having to sleep and he appears or something like that you have to go back you have to stop this well here's here's the thing though and you you take away what i think is the creepiest kill in the movie if you do that and that is when gage goes you know is arisen goes back steals his daddy's scalpel and goes over to judd and cuts judd's achilles tendon then slices his mouth open and then goes to eat in his throat <laughs> i was like that is freaking demonic children that is just creepy no it is that is that it is it's probably the most effective kill scene in this movie when it comes to all this stuff. Yeah, the Achilles heel thing. Oh, man. Oh, God. This makes me hurt thinking about it. And, and I kid you not, every time I hear about some professional athlete tearing their Achilles, I go back to this scene. I'm like, oh, God. I mean, it's, it's, it's this scene in Hostel when they do that. It's just like, <laughs> oh, man. Because this is like, I, I've, I've partially torn my Achilles before. And 
you are dead. I mean, you are dead to the world as far as mobility goes because you cannot do a damn thing. Exactly. It's, it's the thing that keeps your leg, like it holds your leg together. Yeah. And all your muscles together and it just, it's gone. It's, oh God, I can't, I can't. But it, it, I mean, it's become an effective scene. But, and I always get a kick out of, and I don't know, again, how Ah, they, dude, I'm going to get some steel plates for the back of my, <laughs> my legs right now, dude, because I'm just even, I'm squirming thinking. It's, it does, man. It gives you that willies. But I'm going to tell you the thing that, and again, I I don't know how Mary Lambert got him to do it. When Miko Hughes goes in and he's clearly just biting the appliance that's on uh, Fred Gwynn's neck there, and he leans up and gives that you know, bloody smile to the screen, I'm like, how did they get that kid to do that and him not be fucked up for life? I don't know. You make that it was, fun. You make it fun for him. Like we're going to play makeup or something like that. Hey, Uncle, Uncle Fred's uh, neck is now a cake <laughs> or something. I was like, God, that is good. It's really good. But again, I, and, I, and I credit Mayor Lambert for that. That could have come off really bad or really cheesy, and it's not. It's incredibly effective. If you're even bothering to try to be with this movie at all, that that scene freaks you out. Cause you, I, like, I, 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 I give Herman Munster credit, though, dude. It's like, Oh, he plays it great, yeah. Yeah, just the acting and just like even having that kid on your neck and he's probably like kind of like lightly biting you. I'd be laughing so hard, dude. Ah, oh, that's that happening, you know. <laughs> like this is so silly. And even like that, it's like, dude, it's like I'm freaking ticklish as hell in my neck, and it's like anything like that happening, I'd be freaking laughing. And for, and for all we know, that may have that may have actually happened. Who knows? I mean, it, people talk about it all the time when they make horror movies and they're in the kill moments that everybody's usually cracking up because it's, it's so <laughs> staged and ridiculous that it's like, what am I doing to you? <laughs> but, yeah. you know. But I I don't know. I thought I thought it was really effective. But of course, Rachel eventually you know gets back home and like it, she goes through some hell to try to get back home, right? Like she she's in a rental car. She gets the one rental car because she's like we don't have anything and then pascal's like what about the dodge aries it's got this crash down the side i'm like oh nice product placement and then <laughs> she gets in that it has a wreck and she flags down a trucker and like the trucker is then visited or haunted by pascal who basically keeps the trucker from hurting her and i had a question was that the same trucker that hit her son because isn't it no, our- I, th- I thought that trucker was dead because the way that truck crashed I don't know. Maybe it did because it did flip. I don't know. But I, I was like, this is ironic that the truck kills your son, and then all of a sudden, yeah, I need a trucker to get me back to my house. You know, it's gone full circle. I, it's, it's coming around. So, but 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 I tell you though, man, Stephen King really loves doing this with some of his characters. You're gonna go back. You got to stop this. You got to save the day. All suddenly, you know, uh, God, what's the black guy's name? I'm sh- shining. The Shining. Oh, uh, the shit. That's a long time ago. I don't remember. Um, Scatman Crothers is the actor. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. All of a sudden, you know, you're gonna you're gonna sit there, you're gonna go back, you're gonna save the day, and all of a sudden, like, Scatman gets an axe in the back. <laughs> yeah. It's, and it's, it's, it's the same thing. It is the same thing here. She works to get her way back. She gets there, and all of a sudden, she's killed right away. Well, and it's it, just like how it's about a trope the, of this. How about the way Gage kills her? Too. It. She hears a laugh that sounds like her sister Zelda calling her name. And then she hears Gage's laughter, and I'm like, how is the evil apparitions calling that? I mean, Zelda, it was a distant memory for her. She was not buried in the McMack burial ground. How is she? To, me this, is the, to me, this is all just because I think it just goes back to my point. I think this is just some type of demon or something like that's just been doing it all. The Indians awoken this demon, and you go back there and screw around with its rest or whatever, it's going to screw around with you. It knows what haunts you. It knows your fears. Well, look at what Gage does to her, though, too. I mean, not only does he stab her and cut her eyes out, but he ends up hanging her in the basement like Missy Dandridge. 
And I was how like, can he do that though, man? I, I mean, know that's what I wanted to know. I was like, how did that little kid who could barely walk down the hallway with the scalpel pull that? I was like, yeah, that's. I mean, that would have been fine if he had found her like laid over on the, you know, the staircase cut to hell or something. But that was weird that she was hung. Yeah, uh, they, they 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 didn't set that up properly, showing that these I, things have. Like, I'm wondering if there's sure. something cut in here that sets that up better. I don't know what it would have been, but they. Why well, I, I imagine the scene going down almost like Mini Me fighting freaking uh, Austin Powers and all. What is looking at her above the head and spinning her? That's exactly what it looks like. But of course, then we get the creepy phone call to Daddy. You know, I've been playing with everybody, and why don't you come over? We had a good time. And of course, Lewis knows. Okay, I gotta go. Gotta take care of this. So he arms himself I don't with hypodermic. With you, yeah. Oh, this is weird. But he gets the big, you know, shot some morphine. And he goes over, and the first thing he does is he finds he finds uh, Church, and he throws like a raw steak down, and so Church starts bothering with that, and then he stabs Church with the thing, and I'm like, okay, look, I know you're on this mission to kill everything you've raised from the dead here, Lewis, but Church hasn't really hurt anybody. He's just been kind of a dick to everybody, which is pretty much what a cat does anyway, so I don't think Church deserved it. That's all I'm going to say. But does it not, do these things have like a, you know, insatiable, you know, appetite for you know flesh or something i mean I, I don't cat, the cat's gnawing on the piece of, you know piece of steak and stuff that was never really established before you think of it this thing has like a big flesh hunger it'd be trying to attack the little girl or something exactly yeah it would have attacked him more like it scratches lewis but i that's the only violent thing the cat does yeah <laughs> and even, even the kid this wasn't like the kid was sitting there gnawing on his mom's arm or something afterwards i mean that would have been kind of funny he walks and he's got the mom's arm and he's eating it like a chicken wing <laughs> So, so eating a finger, yeah, something weird like that. I guess they probably couldn't go there, but yeah. But I'll tell you, another effective scene here is when, of course, Lewis goes and he finds Rachel's corpse, and that's just strange, and hanged, and we don't know how that happened. But then he finds Gage, and the way he gets Gage, you know, the way he kind of tries to relate to him or whatever. And I, it, I mean, it's heartbreaking when he stabs him and Gage starts falling back, and he goes, "You don't play fair, no fair." And it it gave me another moment of pause. I'm like, how do these zombies die again? I was like, do they just come back as actually reanimated people that are just evil so that you can kill them the same way you could kill a normal person? Well, how did he know that all that morphine was going to kill him? I, well, I mean, being a doctor, I imagine he would know if you overdose somebody on something that that would do it. If nothing more, it'll knock them cold. So. But these things are come back from the dead, though. That, I mean, I, obviously, that's going to kill me or I, you or anybody Lu- else. Lewis clearly is inadequate. Maybe he's just going with all he had. <laughs> you know? I mean, he didn't look well, like he had a shotgun you know, or something or anything useful like a sword. You know? I mean, he just had to go with what he had, which was... Medical. Why not again? Okay, I'm going to do a little bit of rewrite. He finds his wife. She's not dead. She's in a lot of pain or something like that. And he's just trying to freak out, trying to help her out. He goes and grabs this thing of morphine or whatever. They give it to her and stuff. And he, you know, does it so she can ease her pain and just die. It also, the cat then starts to attack him. The only thing you can do is just grab the rest of that morphine and shove it into the cat and it kills it. Oh my God, this kills the cat. This thing's. Uh, that would have been cool. Again, in your reboot of it, I hope they go with this. So, because it's it's making it's working better now. Stephen King will see you for completely trashing his book because none of that shit's in the book. I mean, this all goes down exactly like this in the book. Or this is, I mean, it's like again, it's like watching it shot straight from the page. But the I love his disillusion here, though. He's he killed Gage. Everybody's dead, and he's like, uh, I got to burn this house. So he burns Judd's house down. <laughs> With the dead cat, the dead old man, and the dead kid. Now, we've already talked about the lack of municipality authority in this town. I think somebody would have noticed the bonfire 
that was going on on Route 6 <laughs> as Judd's house goes up in flames. I didn't know that that was necessary. I Did you? Yeah, I don't think it was necessary, and it's pretty stupid on his part because... And what is I don't hope? know. I, I, I don't know, man. At, at this point, I would be like, I'm going to keep everything the way it is. I'm calling the authorities. I'm telling them exactly what happened. And then he's going to be gonna a padded exactly. cell. I mean, that's what's going to happen. No, I'd be like, go up there and bury someone right now. Go up there and bury someone because, you know, they're going to. Sh- there would be some type of evidence there with the kid's fingerprints on the scalpel and stuff like that. And the fact that the kid, there's probably footprints of the kid walking around. Well, you know what? That's an interesting point. Let me yeah. let me let me do a rewrite to it, or whatever. If you want to do the sequel to your reboot of Pet Cemetery, is that that's how it ends, or whatever? And then he is in jail because when you're dead, you don't leave fingerprints anymore because you don't have oils in your body anymore. So it, the only fingerprints on the scalpel are his. So you that's get true. framed. I, that would be that would be kind of cool. So, but there's going to be footprints around the house. So that kid was muddy. I, I mean, I mean, people have done weirder stuff to stage crime scenes before. I don't know. Just go put a goddamn. Go- Kill that bird and go put it in there. (laughs) Well, before we get to the reboot of it, though, we do have to get to the actual ending of this thing. He's walking down the road with with his wife's body, and Pascal, of course, shows up. And here's the thing about this, is Pascal, after he gets Rachel back to the house, looks at her and says, I can't go any further. This is the end of my power. Good luck. Then he shows up again. I'm like, wait, I thought you were done. How did you get back? Because he tries to go, no, don't bury it. And I thought that was really unnecessary. I was like, I was done with him. I didn't need to see the ghost. He should have I found another battery. I'm back for a little Something, bit. Yeah, I stole one out of the guitar tuner so I could come back for just a minute. I really didn't need that because I was like, I, we know Lewis is going to bury her. He's talking about it the whole time. He's going, I was too late with Gage. I'm just in time with her. I'd have been fine if that was just him monologuing to himself like i was i was cool with that i don't know why pascal got thrown back into the end of that because it wasn't necessary and of course I, here's the thing that i want to ask you this because what happens is lewis buries her he's sitting there playing solitaire she shows up grotesque they start making out and she stabs him and the ramones Dude, her eyes that, that, that is, was pretty cool that was nasty that was he's like kissing her and like all that like green yellow eye pus is going in his mouth and looks like that is really freaking gross, man. I don't care how passionately you know in love you are with this. You got yellow eye pus going into your mouth, dude. That oh, dude, no, dude, his no. cranial fluid. It was nasty. It was really nasty. But here's my question: Is did he bury her so that she would come back and kill him? Because it seemed like he was totally resigned to death at that point. And it, and at that point, I'm like, why don't you just do your own shot of morphine and go to sleep? I thought I thought it was to the point where maybe that he was. He lost his mind that he is absolutely bat nuts insane right now. And I think, yeah, that would have been better. If he had a better actor, they could have probably portrayed that more. You know, maybe like, you know, after his son, after he kills his son, you know, for the second time and, you know, everybody's dead. His wife's dead. He doesn't know what the hell to do. You know, maybe maybe the daughter calls at home and stuff like that, checking to see if mom got there. And he's just completely lost his mind. You know, he's on the ground just crying laughing doing whatever and he's just you know just loses his mind so that almost makes a little bit more sense that he'd go bury his wife in there because right now it's like dude he even got half a sense in there you know not to rebury her or bury her in there because it's not going to turn out good but he does it anyway so i wrote a rather had it more that he was actually completely insane at this point just completely bug nuts insane i, I would have been cool with it if we never saw her like if he's, I mean, we see her like dragging herself through the house and all this stuff. I would have been fine if like we never had any of that. He's sitting there playing solitaire, and all of a sudden the door kind of hinges open, 
you know, and, and maybe we've set up earlier that that door doesn't stay shut real well. And he just looks up and starts laughing maniacally and then cut to the Ramones. Like I'd have been fine with that. Like we don't know what happened. That that would have, uh, that's what they do anyway. Cause they don't show her kill him. We just hear him scream the thwack of the knife. And then that's it. Yeah. Why not just have him just kind of like, you hear like the door kind of open and he looks over and he just goes, honey. And that's it. Uh, yeah. I mean, cause what she looks at him and says, hello, darling. And then they start making out and then she kills him. I, mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I do say this, though, for all the what we wanted the ending to be or whatever, I actually I do like the ending. I like how no one gets out of this, basically. Well, the, da- the daughter does. Well, the daughter. The, but you know what? She was the innocent. Well, she's going well, she, to be extremely fucked up and need a lot of counseling. And those grandparents how, are not exactly. How are they going to explain to her what happened to her parents is what I want to know. <laughs> I have no well, idea. So mom's going to be alive, though. That's the thing. Is the daughter going to come back? Are they going to like send the daughter back there and also like, the mom's there and kills the daughter? I, I are, the gran- are, are, the, are the grandparents going to go back with them because they can't get a hold of anybody? I mean, what if they call up and the mom picks up and like, oh, send her home? You know, yeah, and they I don't know. Her. I've never seen Pet Cemetery too. Do they talk about that in Pet Cemetery too? I know none of those people are in it, so I would assume that they don't. But they barely briefly touched on it that the guy who lived in the house who did that died or something like that, and that's about it. But Pet Cemetery two. Just to like touch on that, you have to watch it. It is so freaking bad, and it's like they're trying to be scary, but it's hilarious. I, just how stupid it is. You have the guy, the the the, the badass uh, uh, guard from the Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> really, he plays, he pl- Yeah, he plays the stepfather there, and they end up burying him in there. And it's not even like he's like evil. He like he kills a bully and stuff like that, and then he's just kind of like driving around in his car and stuff like that, and just like I'm, I'm wreaking havoc. It's almost like the scene in Dumb and Dumber when uh when Larry uh uh has all the uh or no uh Lloyd Lloyd drinks Jim Carrey after he gives uh the one guy all that stuff and he's shitting himself. You see him on the bike and he's laughing, going ah, and that, that's exactly what it is. It's him driving around just like laughing, doing all this like. This is kind of evil. I'm gonna like spray paint stuff. Ah ha ha! I mean, it's 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 so bad, dude. You have I, to. See it. I'm gonna see that. We probably won't review it here, but I I will have to watch that now. So, well, we're at the point of the podcast where it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So, Nick, what are yours for Pet Cemetery? Uh, as much as I sat there and kind of rewrote a lot of this movie, I did really enjoy it. I think out of all the uh, Stephen King films that we have done, this is definitely one of the better ones. Um, even though some of the acting is pretty pretty suspect. The plot is very good. I like the whole thing with the ancient Indian burial ground and these people coming back. I just wish stuff was a little bit more touched upon as far as what's happening and maybe a little bit better motivations for these characters. But overall, a very good movie. Solid recommend. I would give it probably medium to large, probably a medium popcorn with a little bit of extra butter on there. I'm going to join you in the medium popcorn. I think it's definitely medium popcorn state, but it's really good medium. It's like good, you know, thriller, horror, matinee. If you want to watch something scary on a rainy day or something semi-scary on a rainy day and just have some fun, if you don't go, if you're not going to, you know, do what we've done, which is try to rewrite the thing and just go with it, it's actually pretty good. And it's got some really effective scares and it's got some really creepy stuff that happens in it. The stuff with Zelda is just creepy and the little evil gauge is pretty, pretty effective. And I'll tell you, if for nothing more than just to watch Fred Gwynn, his performance here is amazing. I mean, it is really, really good. And I 
totally think this one's worth it. So good, strong, buttery, medium popcorn for me, too. One of the better ones we've done, for sure, in the Stephen King retrospective here. We've really got two more in- installations we're going to do on this run of the Stephen King thing. We're going to do Christine, the John Carpenter adaptation from the 80s. And then, Nick, we're going to do The Stand, the eight-hour, six-hour, eight-hour uh, big uh, miniseries. We're going to review that whole thing, largely considered Stephen King's best work ever. That's going to be a real fun one to get into in the coming weeks. Certainly looking forward to that. Folks, you can always find more episodes in the archive section of our website, continuousplaypodcast.com. Click on the film strip link. You can also find links to our other podcasts, The Art of Slaying, our Buffy the Vampire Slayer retrospective, and to The Fabish Factor, hosted by Kurt Fabish. Nick makes a lot of appearances on there where they do general movie discussion talk and all kinds of good stuff going on. Folks, we do appreciate your support. Until next time, for Nick, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Visit our website, continuousplaypodcast.com for more reviews and episodes. This was a burial ground. All content used or discussed in this podcast are the property of their respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act Section 504C2, Title 17.